This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. At the top of the month, we here at Second Story officially began our 21st season. After so many years of storytelling, you might think it's impossible to bring something new or surprising to the microphone. But I beg to differ. And this week's story by teller P.J. Gray exemplifies how inspiration can truly come from anywhere. In this case, a young boy finds growth and understanding in the dairy aisle. Recorded live at Found Kitchen and Social House in Chicago in September 2018, Second Story is proud to present the Mother and Cheese Reunion. You know, Oscar Wilde once said, after a good dinner, one can forgive anybody, even one's own relatives. I find comfort in that. I also find comfort in food, always have. So much that I authored comfort food cookbooks and when publicizing them, I was often asked by the press, how do you define comfort food? Good question. I believe that there are two camps, the emotional and physical. Some find the comfort in the recall of favorite memories that certain foods provide and others find comfort in foods that they deem rich and satisfying. Personally, I believe in both, simultaneously, because good food has always rewarded me that way. But enough about me. This is about my mother and food. But first, a little background about her. My mother was born and raised in the Lorraine region of France and comes from a very old and noble French family bloodline. Side note, her maiden name begins with the nobiliary particle de la, or of the, preceding the nom de terre, which some believe represents aristocracy, and in my mother's case, it does. She met my Texan father in post-World War II France and while he was an army GI, and in a rebellious act of young love, they courted there, initially against the wishes of my mother's parents, uh, they fell in love and then they married. They eventually migrated to the southern US to raise a large and lovingly dysfunctional family of their own. She faced many cultural obstacles and looking back now, she has my heartfelt sympathy. She did her best to adapt to the English language and American customs and especially American foods. But simply put, she was brie and camembert in a very pimento cheese world. On top of that, she was raising seven very self-absorbed American children who were simply disconnected from their French heritage. So, she desperately tried to instill a sense of French pride and understanding whenever she could. For instance, she informed us of, that her noble French nose could be found on the faces on paintings in the Louvre Museum. This is true, I've seen them. Or if the conversation allowed, she might remind us that she and my father were married in the ancient church where Joan of Arc was baptized, also confirmed. Or at the dinner table, her blue eyes would brighten and she might blurt out without warning, did you know that in France there are 365 different varieties of cheese? That means you can try a different cheese every day of the year. Fascinating, one of us would reply. Would someone pass the peas? 
She continued to push her Francophile agenda whenever she could. <laughs> Keep in mind she was feeding an American husband and children in the South, which strangely enough, this French woman with no previous culinary experience, remember nobility, her childhood home had a cook, she could cook a mean fried chicken from a cast iron skillet or whip up mouth-watering biscuits and gravy to satisfy her palates. However, when she could, a coco vin or a quiche would make it to the dinner table, thanks to watching episodes of Julia Child on PBS. Go figure. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, we enjoyed these dishes, my father especially, he loved them all, but they usually came with a price, the unrequested French lesson. If one of these French dinner nights became too, shall I say, educational, we could easily diffuse its significance. For instance, to her dismay, ratatouille became known as what's it to ya? <laughs> and simple expressions like merci beaucoup and s'il vous plaît became mercy buckets and silver plates. In these moments, her look of disgust and slow head shake and tisk-tisk disappointment matched our satisfaction like a fine Bordeaux paired with a hearty bouff bourguignon. <laughs> Despite this, she remained tenacious. Even our school lunches were fair game. Yes, she knew how to make a PB&J, but quite often my lunchbox would consist of a piece of leftover sausage folded into a slice of bread, and next to that would be an ample piece of fruit and some mixed nuts and a few wedges of cheddar cheese, cut from a large block, of course, <laughs> and carefully gift-wrapped in wax paper. She had basically created the Dean and DeLuca of lunchboxes, and it was completely <laughs> lost on me. Instead, I remorsefully dubbed it the French peasant farmer's lunch. I often stared in awe as classmates unpacked their lunchboxes filled with the assorted ding-dongs and ho-hos and Susie Q's and vanilla zingers and moon pies and snowballs. There was one particular uh, lunchroom moment that was life-changing though. I watched as a third grade classmate carefully peeled a bright, shiny, cartoonish orange cheese-like substance from its futuristic cellophane casing and gently placed it onto his ham sandwich. Whoa. It was as if I was sitting next to Elroy Jetson himself. It was the coolest thing I had ever seen and I wanted that on my sandwich more than life itself. I need to explain here though that um, typically my siblings and I dreaded a car outing with my mother. What would begin as a simple pickup from school or a friend's house would potentially lead to a harrowing two-hour supermarket visit with one simple comment from her. Oh, I need to swing by the store for something. <laughs> However, on the next occasion, when she uttered that dreadful phrase, my light bulb popped. Suddenly, a moment of inspiration came from nowhere. A foolproof plan. Once we were in the store, I was going to find that beautiful cellophane cheese. <laughs> then, covertly drop it into the shopping cart, perhaps tuck it under a sack of potatoes or those despicable heads of cabbage. Then, my precious gift would somehow be rung up by the cashier, sight unseen, naturally. 
and finally landing at home miraculously, whereupon my mother would blindly toss it in the refrigerator. Brilliant, I know. If memory serves me correctly, the next supermarket visit included my older sister, Jane. My mother remained laser-focused on her shopping list, starting at the produce side of the store and then expertly coiling through every aisle, depositing all too familiar items into the large metal shopping cart. I hawk-eyed each aisle until we reached the dairy section where, lo and behold, my secret treasure was discovered. Now, I managed to smuggle the contraband into the cart, but minutes later, things went horribly wrong. <laughs> I was taunting Jane about something insignificant when my mother interrupted in a low, pronounced tone. What is this? <laughs> I turned to see her holding the shiny plastic package in her manicured hand. Suddenly, I could feel my heart racing in my chest like I had swallowed a jackhammer. I turned to my sister who had conveniently vanished. Oh yes, gone. Off to find a temporary pretend family for self-preservation, no doubt. So there I was, caught, trapped, staring back at a guillotine wearing a jet black page boy and pink lipstick. Come with me my mother demanded and grabbed my now nervously moist forearm. She marched me back to the dairy case and I can still hear the click-clack, click-clack of her high heel shoes on the vinyl flooring. Not surprisingly, my bathroom request was completely denied, despite the immediate urgency. Tears began to well. My mother handed me the package and sternly said, before you put it back on the shelf, read that out loud. She pointed to the package label, tapping it with her pink, polished fingernail. I began to cry as a few shoppers lingered nearby, pretending to squeeze loaves of sliced bread for freshness. <laughs> Process, cheese, food, product. <laughs> I said between catching breaths. What is that? She demanded. I was now sobbing. I don't know, <laughs> I bellowed. Exactly, she replied. No one knows. And no child of mine will ever, ever eat something like that. I carefully placed the package back on the shelf, tears blurring my vision. Of course, she knew what I had done, and she saw what she had done. So she took a handkerchief uh, from her white patent leather purse and leaned down and gently wiped my wet face. Do you understand? She asked softly <laughs> as she kissed my cheek. I nodded and she hugged me for a while. And then she stood and glared at any remaining gawkers. And then with our remaining dignity, we continued to shop. You know, the scene comes to mind from time to time. Like uh, last week at my supermarket, I was perusing the cheese section, as I do, when I noticed a fellow shopper next to me carefully studying an array of Roquefort's, carefully smelling each one. Ah, yes, one of my people. <laughs> right then and there, 
I was compelled to interrupt and ask without hesitation, did you know that in France there are 365 different varieties of cheese? That means you could try a different cheese every day of the year. This story was produced by Ali Drum, curated by Nick Ward, directed by Amanda Delheimer, with music and sound design by Shane Longbane. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a city arts grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Leopardo Charitable Foundation, our 2018-2019 season sponsor, Skadden Arp Slate Meager and Flom, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.